you definitely are investing in an individual and you need somebody who's just not going to give up resiliency and a product focused and a customer focus, I think, are what I look for. So this craftsmanship, the ability to build a really great product is critical. That does not happen by accident or randomly. So if a person makes a beautiful product, if you think about it like a chef, if somebody makes the perfect steak, and they just cook it perfectly to your liking, and the chances of them making another perfect steak are very high. And if you just give you know, a random person like a steak, like they're not going to cook it perfectly. So I think when you see a beautiful product and customers who are delighted over it, it's generally not random. It's generally by design because somebody very specifically obsessed over that product. Welcome, welcome. Hello, my name's Tom Wallace and I'm the managing partner here at Florida Funders. Welcome to Florida Funders Angel Investing in Florida podcast. Our pod is all about how to make all of us better angel investors. One of the things I love most about angel investing is it's so dynamic. It's always changing, always something new to learn and some other new angel to learn from, which is why we have this pod and the whole idea behind the podcast. Today, we have an opportunity to learn from one of the top angel investors on the planet, Jason Calacanis. I have his book right here. I'm going to introduce Jason in a second. Jason has invested in over 200 tech startups, which has me over double what I've got. So he's way ahead of me. He's hit already, I think, six or seven unicorns. We'll talk more about that. And he's one of the best known and most successful angel investors in Silicon Valley. Jason, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Really excited about having you on the show. Before we get started, just a real quick blurb on Florida Funders. We're a hybrid between a venture capital firm and a, a network of accredited 1,500 accredited investors who are focused on finding funding and building the next generation of great startup companies here in Florida. If Florida Funders were on a mission to change Florida from sunshine state to startup state, we want Florida to be known for technology and innovation, not for the mouse, not for tourism, and, and not for strawberries. So with that, Jason, I've heard a little bit of a rumor you might be leaving San Francisco and that Florida is on your possible a, There is an <laughs> HQ2 search in the works right now, apparently. In all seriousness, um, the pandemic has shown that you no longer need to be in Silicon Valley to be a great investor. It used to be, if you really wanted to be plugged into the deal flow, you kind of had to be here. And mm -hmm. if you were in Florida, that would be a disadvantage, right? Now that every 100% of people are online, I think that that's up for grabs. You know, when there's 5% of people working remote or 15%, it's not enough critical mass that behaviors change. So the behavior of coming to Silicon Valley, going up and down Sand Hill Road, going and meeting 25 investors in two weeks, like that behavior might change now that we're in a pandemic. And in fact, it, it has changed in the pandemic. And I think it will change post, which is investors, VCs, et cetera. They used to have a rule. We have to like go visit your plant. You have to come visit our offices three or four times, then we'll get to know each other. We'll go on a hike. We'll do some kumbaya stuff. We'll, you know, yeah. we'll bang on drums and then we'll give right. you the money. Now people are just like, uh, don't have time for that. Send me your deck, send me your metrics. Let's do three Zoom calls and then we're going to cut a check. And so people are doing deals over Zoom. They're doing deals over email and yep. mm -hmm. that's a sea change. So I might consider relocating in the coming years to Austin, Miami, Nashville, Utah, somewhere. You might want to add Tampa to your list. <laughs> I, you know, I'm basically open-minded to it. I think the cost of doing business in the Bay Area has gotten so absurd. 
cost of living has gotten so absurd. No, sure. it doesn't impact me, you know, acutely, but for my team, et cetera. So I, it's on the table for sure. And I think right now Miami is having a super resurgence. We've got a couple of investments in the Miami area, Nashville, Salt Lake, and Colorado. What's kind of interesting, we've seen here in Florida, the exodus out of San Francisco and the Bay Area that's been going on, I think even before COVID, maybe accelerated by COVID, you know, those company, companies would typically go to Austin, typically go to Boulder, places like that. In the last year or two, we've started to get calls from companies leaving the Valley coming to Florida, which is very exciting for us. You want to have an environment where young people who are starting their career want to live. And so that means you need art, you need parties, you need raves, you need restaurants, (laughs) you need fashion, you you need some kind of cosmopolitan experience, I think, and fun experience, to be totally honest. It has to be a lot of fun for people, uh, for young people specifically. Now, old people, oldsters, uh, you know, they'll live anywhere. They can live in the mountains, they can live in the Bay Area, um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll be totally fine with going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, they, they don't need to have a vibrant social scene. But for young folks, they, they want to have that vibrant social scene. And I think that's why Miami, Austin, Nashville are becoming kind of scenes. Los Angeles, obviously, too, over the last decade has become quite a scene. And you know, the, San Francisco used to have that, but it's just too goddamn expensive. Even if the prices went down another, they've been down 20% or so for rents, 25%. They need to go down another 25%. They have to come down a full 50%. You know, $3,500 one bedrooms need to become, you know, $2,000, maybe even $1,800 one bedrooms to make it viable again, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, maybe yeah. 2000 is a good number. Uh, and that's what it costs in Austin, right? If you go to Austin or Miami, you can get a one bedroom for 1500 I think, um, yeah, sure. pretty easily. Um, yeah, no problem. So that's the kind of situation where a young person can see themselves going to that city on a 50, 60, 70K starting salary. Yeah. Well, speaking of young people, why don't we back up a little bit, tell our listeners how you got started in angel investing and, you know, prior to angel investing, what you were doing and how this all all came about. For- yeah, it's pre- pretty straightforward. I, you know, I, I, wor- I started my career in IT. I went to school at night, Fordham University. I was a psychology major and I was going to go into the FBI. I was going to go to John Jay and do criminal forensic psychology as my master's or PhD or maybe industrial organizational psychology at Stevens Institute. I was interested in both of those paths. And I didn't go into law enforcement, uh, although I was going to become a cop before going to college. And then I decided to go to college at night. And then I was going to go into the FBI. And then I didn't. I saw where you have a brother that's a firefighter. My brother's a firefighter, just retired. And he started on the police force. And the two of us took our test at the same time in 1989, I think. And he went into the police force. And then I said, you know what? I I got into Fordham. Maybe I'll just go at night for a couple of years and see how it goes and see if I can pull it off and if I can figure out a way to pay for it because I had to pay my own way through school. My parents didn't have the money for it. So I just worked IT. And then IT in the early 90s turned into the internet. And I just happened to be at Fordham hanging on the computer lab and working for Amnesty International doing BBSs, like dial-up modems. And then the internet happened. And so I got hooked into BitNet and ARPANET and I, I knew how that worked and was in the right place at the right time, like a lot of other people, and started a magazine called Cyber Surfer about CD-ROMs. And Brian Alvey, my frequent collaborator, was the designer and writer of that with me. Then I did Silicon Valley Reporter, which became a $12 million business with close to 100 employees at the peak. And I was in my 20s and became king of New York, just writing about startups when the internet happened. Then I started a company called Weblogs Inc., which is a blogging company. Mark Cuban invested, and I sold that to AOL 18 months after starting it for $30 million. And so I got my first payday. Then I became an entrepreneur and 
Sequoia made me an entrepreneur in action, like an entrepreneur in residence, but in action. And then they made me a Sequoia scout. And they said, here's a bunch of money, go invest it. And in the first seven or eight investments, I did data stacks, Thumbtack, and famously Uber. So it was kind of like, you know, hitting three grand slams your first seven times up at bat. Yeah. It's kind of kind of crazy to hit three out of seven home runs. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, you have to tell uh, tell the Uber story. And I have to confession to make. I was talking to Zach Coolius, who's another angel investor. I know you know Zach. And the first time I heard of Uber, I thought it was the stupidest idea. I'm like, some stranger's going to pick me up in their car and take me to the airport. I didn't get it. But obviously you did. Tell us the Uber story. That's got to be a, a, a fascinating story. Most of the outlier ideas... 80 or 90% of people would say that's dumb or that's not going to work. And that's true. That's an actual true statement. And really being a great angel investor is being able to recognize that there are long odds and there's a 90% chance this will not work. And it's a stupid idea, quote unquote. And then pause for a second and say, what if it does work? But what if it goes right? Not what if it goes wrong, because there's a lot of reasons why a startup will fail. But what if it goes right? Not what if it goes wrong, as Bill Gurley always tells me. And uh, that is kind of my credo. And when I saw... Uber, you know, Travis was coming out of a party on the Embarcadero here in San Francisco. He said, hey, you want to see my new startup? I said, can I invest? And he said, sure, let me show it to you first. And I said, no, I just want to invest. And so he agreed to let me invest. And he showed it to me. And it was just, you know, here's a bunch of cabs on the road. I think there were one or two at the time. And he said, it's going to be like sharing an airplane. So you'll have your personal drive. And the original idea was time-sharing drivers. It wasn't like on-demand. Um, mm-hmm. It was you and three other people would hire a driver with a car, give them 20K each or 10K each, whatever it was. And that person would be available to the four of you. And if they was driving you to the airport, it would pick me up next kind of thing. So it was time sharing for personal drivers. Sounds like there was a pivot in there. I think it was more of an evolution. You know, they started with Lincoln Town Cars and dispatching Lincoln Town Cars. Then they added ride sharing, you know, people using their personal cars. Then they added pool, then they added Uber Eats. So but he had that vision of being a logistics company early on. If you watch the This Week in Startups, if you type in This Week in Startups, Travis, you'll find it on YouTube. And you know, he was talking about it being a logistics company, moving people and things from point A to point B from the beginning. And that was when it was just in one city. So that was, a, you know, I got lucky on that investment, obviously. And really luck plays into this a, a whole bunch. Sure. And you are defined by your winners. And so, you know, com.com and Robinhood were the two other big winners in my career so far to date. And, you know, they're, they're also very random stories. And they're also stories of long odds and outliers. And so the things that seem safe to you as an investor are the things that are likely going to have a modest outcome. The things that are high risk are high reward and have massive outcomes. So what you're really trying to go for is the idea that 80 and 90% of people say Airbnb is a stupid idea. Like I thought, when I heard that idea, I thought that is the stupidest idea yeah. I've ever heard. I'm going to stay on somebody's couch, like a serial killer's couch, and we're going to have a serial killer stay on my couch. Like this is dumb. And boy, was I wrong. Like, and the key there is that brilliant founders like Brian over at Airbnb or Travis uh, or Alex and Michael at Com, they evolve their products over time. And they, they take feedback from their customers. And really, Airbnb became more about rental properties and people managing properties than like people managing their couch or extra bedroom, right? Like, I think that's a very small sliver of what they do is like couch surfing. Uh, but they did start as a couch surfing service, and which is why I think rightfully 30 or 40 investors turned them down because it was like, yeah. well, couch surfing sounds dangerous and stupid and niche. Like, why would I do that? But what the investors didn't anticipate was that this would evolve and people would buy properties and own 10 properties and make, you know, little mini businesses like eBay businesses yeah. or uh, businesses like uh, Etsy, right? Like these, these 
platforms that allow an individual to become an entrepreneur, like a little micro entrepreneur and own three properties and, you know, pay off three apartments because they're Airbnb them in Rhode Island and Providence or something. Like it's very cool when you can get people that entrepreneurial bug because then they're spending all their time building your platform and telling you what to build into the platform. This happened with eBay. It happened with Etsy. It happened with Airbnb. It happened with Uber, with YouTube. Like if you can help people make a living, that's a, that's a big, big idea. So you, you talked about Travis and Uber and, and you, were, you kind of invested in him, it sounded like, more than the idea. Uh, talk to us about that. How important, obviously, the founder is very important. What do you look, what's the one thing you look for in founders? And is that the most important thing you do during due diligence is really the founder side of it? Yeah, I mean, you definitely are investing in an individual and you need somebody who's just not going to give up resiliency and a product focused and a customer focus, I think, are what I look for. So this craftsmanship, the ability to build a really great product is critical. That does not happen by accident or randomly. So if a person makes a beautiful product, if you think about it like a chef, if somebody makes the perfect steak, and they just cook it perfectly to your liking. And the chances of them making another perfect steak are very high. And if you just give you know, a random person, like a steak, like they're not going to cook it perfectly. So I think when you see a beautiful product and customers who are delighted over it, it's generally not random. It's generally by design because somebody very specifically obsessed over that product. And I see it all the time, very early in products. So when I see a product like com.com, it was very clear early on that that product was brilliantly conceived and so I, that's one of my little secrets is if a person was going to make a beautiful product and a world-changing product and a great product, they would have done it. And money doesn't change that, right? So the person who could make that perfect steak, like it's not a function of money. Like if you throw $10,000 at a person and say, make a great steak, that's not going to actually solve the problem. They need to know the technique. And so I, that's what I look for personally. And then it, it is helpful if they're going after a big market. It is helpful if they have great margins, but What stage do you like to invest? My Goldilocks zone today is when a person gets their product to market and they have five to 10 customers. So we have an accelerator where we accept people generally with $2,000 to $50,000 a month in revenue, which I would call very modest traction. And then we have the syndicate.com where we tend to invest in companies that have $100,000 a month uh, or so in reoccurring revenue about a million dollars a year in revenue run rate wise. Uh, That's our two sweet spots. Those are our two Goldilocks zones. And we'll make exceptions there. But 90% of failure occurs in startup land before the product gets to market. And so for new angel investors, my best piece of advice is for your first 20 investments, only invest in products that are in market where you can talk to a couple of customers. If you do just that one piece of advice, just like in poker, playing in position and playing you know, high cards and pair, high pairs is going to make you do better than playing, you know, suited connectors or random gap connectors or something uh, and playing out of position. That's just like one fix to everybody's angel investing game. You do not need to, as an early stage investor today, invest in companies before they launch the product. Now, you could say like, well, who's going to invest in this company? Well, there are people who have expertise in doing that. And that there's the risk level is incredibly high. Now, if the company gets to 10000 a month in revenue and they have... 10 customers paying them $1,000 each on average. This is a real company. Like that generally did not happen by accident. And so I would implore people who are listening, who are getting into angel investing, do not take the risk of pre-product market uh, or pre-product launch. Take the risk when they get to 10 to $50,000 a month in revenue and you will eliminate a large number 
a large number of zeros in your portfolio. We agree with that here at Florida Funders. In fact, a big part of our due diligence is really digging into the founder and their background and their experience and their domain expertise. But then also, the second thing that we really focus in is those early customers are really interviewing them and, hey, was it, is this product a nice to have or a have to have? What do we took it out of here? Why did you, why did you agree to buy it? You know, how useful is it? So we, we put a lot into that. So we, we agree with, with you there completely. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, investing side of it, and you mentioned the stage you invested, do you do a lot of follow-ons? Today we do. Our strategy is a four-bet strategy right now. So we make four bets into our winners typically, or most typically. We will have a company like Fitbod or Steezy, two great companies uh, we've invested in multiple times, come to our accelerator. And we place a $100,000 bet when the company's got 1000 to $10,000 in revenue. We get to know the founder over a year. And then when they graduate, uh, after three or four months, they graduate, we'll put in a 500K check. And that will typically occur, let's say, at a six to $10 million valuation. And that will put us in an ownership position between the accelerator and that 500K check of about 10%. Then if they get to series A, we will go super pro rata and try to get our percentage up to 15%. So let's say they do around at 15 million, we put in 1.5 million or we put in 750K. We might put ourselves in a position to add five to 10% to our position. And that'll get us to that, call it 10 to 20% ownership. Then when they do their next round, which would be a series A or series B, depending on how they name them, and they raise $10 million, we'll try to put in one one or two million. And that'll maintain our pro rata, keep us at our percentage ownership, or sometimes modestly improve from there. Basically, we do two different scenarios. One is we track all our companies. If we see they're doubling their revenue in six months or less, we consider giving them a preemptive offer. So for a company like Fitbod or... Steezy or Lead IQ, you know, once that were breaking out and had that sort of profile of doubling revenue in six months or less, uh-huh. we will say to them, hey, can we give you a million dollars at this valuation? And the founder might say, well, I want a little bit of a higher valuation. And we'll say, okay, you should go test the market. And they go test the market and they may come back and say, I got the higher valuation. Do you still want to put the million? And we'll say, sure. Thank you for proving that, you know, we had the valuation too low, um, yeah. as is your right as a founder to go test the market. Other times, I would say three out of four times, founders would just take the million dollars from us because we offer it at a fair valuation. And then one out of four times, they might test the market and then they come back and we still invest. So uh, for us, that's a huge win. And that's really monitoring the portfolio is critically important. So if you're getting past 20 or 30 investments, knowing what your companies did last month in revenue and then comparing that to six months ago, and then just you know comparing those two numbers, hey, What's the trailing three-month average revenue versus last year's trailing three-month average revenue? Doing a little bit of math in a spreadsheet, uh, and I have somebody on the team who does that. And it's pulling teeth across 200 companies, I'll be honest. We have to email the founders three or four times to get updates and data. But then my team says, hey, did you know these three companies are breaking out? Then on the other side, they might run out of money, revenue's flat, revenue might be going down, sideways, whatever. And we say, if you can go find outside investors and they put the valuation, we'll consider investing or maintaining our pro rata. But you don't like doing notes. We do a lot of notes with caps. Oh, no, we do, we do notes with caps. Yeah, we're fine. I mean, the, the only problem really in the marketplace right now is safes, which if a safe does not have an expiration date where it converts into equity, you mm-hmm. could have a situation like TopTal. Uh, Top Talent is the name of the company, I think. TopTal is the domain. But Top TopTal stands for Top Talent. T-O-P-T-A-L. If you type in TopTal safe or you... Top and type top towel this week in startups, you'll see an episode where 
investors invested in that safe, it never had a conversion date. They never raised money. So they're still an LLC. My understanding is they throw off tens of millions in profits. The founder takes those tens of millions of profits and this loan of a million and a half dollars is sitting out there. It should have been converted at whatever, 10 or 15 million. The investor should own, let's say 10% of the company. The company's worth three or 400 million. The investor should have, you know, their 10%, you know, let's say it was 1.5 million, should now be worth 20X, 30X, 40X, and they've never converted. And there's no recourse. So you got to be really careful with these safe notes. I mean, they were named safe for the founders. They're safe for the founders. They're not yeah. safe for investors. Yeah, we try to avoid those here. All you have to do is do a side letter or just edit the safe to have a conversion date, is my understanding. And uh, you know, we're not in it for the interest, so we don't care about the interest. But yeah. we do want to have the equity if it does go well. Yeah, or a cap. Yeah, I mean, you can put a cap. We put a cap in as well. You can edit these things. So I suggest people have great attorneys, and they just consider that. Yeah, be careful that you don't get in a top tail situation. And then also the all the employees at top tail are really pissed off and they also didn't get their equity, including the co-founder. So it's a pretty gnarly situation and it's an outlier. But man, if that happened to me with Uber or Robin or Com, it could be like a serious like hit on my career. So I, I think some downside protection is warranted when you're playing a game as random and as dicey as angel investing. And Somebody recently reviewed, there's like a VC review site. And they said, our, you know, our term sheet was predatory or something. And I was like, uh, I'm not sure I've ever heard the term predatory, but, you know, it was somebody who we didn't invest in. And so obviously yeah. they're, you know, <laughs> it's not a great feeling to get a no. Um, and so you might define our term sheet as predatory because in that case, because we have, we do have two things that we require. One is we ask founders in our term sheets to send monthly updates for that first year or two. And it could be a very short update. Like we did this much revenue. We spent this much. We have this many months of runway. Like literally, it could be just that. And at least it would give us an idea of when you need more money or if you need help. If we ask for 12, we probably get eight on average. If you consider that onerous, you probably shouldn't be taking investor money. You're not mature enough if you can't yeah. update your investors to take that money. Uh-huh. And the other thing is, if we have a 5 or 10% position in the company, we want to have an option of a board seat because what we've seen is proper governance and having a seat at the board leads to better outcomes. And the companies that start board meetings early and I'm a contrarian in this. I think a lot of folks like Y Combinator and other angel investors are like, don't bother with board meetings. I think that's hogwash. I think if you have a board meeting, you create discipline. Oh, yeah, I'd agree more. Yeah, I mean, you, you just learn how to do proper governance. And then when a Series A investor comes along, like, oh, you've had four board meetings? Oh, yeah, I understand. They were an hour each. There was not much to discuss. But, oh, your employee stock option is dialed in. Oh, you had your 409A? Great. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we had minutes from those meetings? Oh, great. Oh, you have a two-year plan? Oh, you have projections? Great. This makes you look like a mature startup. So what I do with my founders is I just sit them down and say, listen, do you want to win? And do you want to look more professional than your contemporaries when you walk into Sequoia, Benchmark, Social Capital, Craft Ventures, whatever you know, great firm it is? Do you want to look professional when you come in there and look like you're venture worthy? And they're like, yeah, I want to look venture worthy. I'm like, great. What's the downside? And they're like, well, my attorney said I shouldn't give up a board seat. Now I'm like, to me, to Jason Calacanis, like, really? Like, Having Jason, no, no, like not to be conceited here, but having me on your board is a, is a sign that the company is worthy of future investment. Like that, that is a positive social. Sure, signal. absolutely. How many that's boards? A social proof. How many boards do you sit on? As a company, I think we have we have the, we 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 write this as a board, an option for a board seat, so we don't take it all the time. Yeah. We take it usually in two circumstances. One, the company's failing and the founder's like, hey, can you get on the board to help me wind this down or get the sale done? Or two, the company's breaking out and they, and they want us on the board. 
And so I think probably around 20, and we probably have an option for 40 more. But you don't personally take all the board. What I do is I, we have an approach at our company, which is we bring two or three people to the board meeting. And so I might officially be with a board member, but we take a team approach so that, you know, we have a managing director and associate and myself on every board call. And if I can't make it, the managing director and associate will be on it. This leads to better outcomes because we can, you know, have insight into what the company's plans are, what their fundraising are. And, you know, it's really difficult, as you know, as an angel investor, a lot of times you find out the company couldn't raise funding and they're going out of business when it's too late to help. And you find out that the company was sold, but you would have invested more and you would have done a secondary offering. But the company got sold and you, you didn't even know what was happening. And by the time they get to you, the founder and the rest of the board or other investors have made the decision and the, the angel group or the syndicate or the individual angel investor has no idea. And that's really one of the leaks that we had in our game early. You know, I have some of these early investments I made and I don't have information rights. So like a company like Datastax, I was one of the first investors from what I understand, but I don't know what percentage of the company owned because I don't know how many outstanding shares there are. All I know is I put in a certain amount of capital and then I got to go beg the CFO for information. And, you know, it's a pain in the neck. And, you know, if you, and that's fine. If you're only writing 25 or 50K checks, you can't expect to have you sure. know, the keys to the kingdom sure. and be on the board. But it is one of the reasons why I changed our approach to getting to that 10 to 20% ownership percentage, to making those four bets, to taking more risk, to having more skin in the game. And yeah. so I think that may have tweaked some downstream investors for me. I know it has. I've had a bunch of downstream investors. I think it's happened three times now where downstream investors tried to take away my board seat. They tried to take away my pro rata rights. They tried to take away my information rights. And mm-hmm. I just you know, had a very clear talk with the founders of the company. I said, listen, at some point, downstream investors will try to take away my rights. They'll try to take away my pro rata. And what you need to know is if they're willing to screw me, the person who got the deal to them you know, and shepherded it and worked on it with you for the first two or three years, there's only one person left after the seed <laughs> investors, the angels to screw, and that's you. Yeah. So if they're willing to screw me, guess what? Yeah. They're going to screw you next. And I'm never going to screw you because we've been in this since day zero together or day 100 or whatever the case may be. You know, we're brothers and sisters in arms. Like we're going to bring this company public together. And, you know, I, I had people try to take my board seats away and I just fought them. And I, I was, uh, if people want to fight with Jason Calacanis, I hate to talk about myself in the third person. Good luck with that. <laughs> Because I'm built for fighting. Like, it's literally, I grew up in like a gladiator arena. Like, I was like a literally like in the arena my entire life getting my That's ass Jason kicked. Alexander like, for Seinfeld that does that, right? Isn't it? Another I Jason. just, you know, listen, if you, it's, it's just a very a stupid approach with me to, to start a war because I will, you know, as you can see, I, I've been publicly at war with Jason Horowitz, <laughs> you know, on my Twitter. And like, I'm not going to stop. Like, for me, it's entertaining. And it's in my DNA to fight. So if you, if you, you know, fair warning to people trying to take away our board seats or, or erase our rights, like I will go to war with you for all time. And I told them straight up, if you're willing to screw me, I will bring the ball down court. I'm a point guard. Like when you're the early stage investor, you're the point guard. And what you need to tell downstream investors is respect my skill, respect what I bring to the game. I bring the ball down the court and I bounce pass it to you right where you like it so that you can dunk it. If I bounce past you and dunk it. You don't pass it back to me when you get double teamed or you're not appreciative of that pass, that crisp, clean pass that puts the ball exactly where you like it. If you don't appreciate that, there's three other people on the floor I can pass to. And I told this one investor who was trying to take away a board seat, he said, Jason, and I wrote about it in my book. He said, Jason, you just have to learn to eat shit. Like when you're in the industry and you're an early stage investor, you're going to eat shit sometimes. I've had to eat shit many times with downstream investors. Just get used to it. And I said, I don't know who told you. 
And I'm sorry that you had to eat shit, but I'm never eating shit, period, end of story. Like it's not happening in this lifetime. So I will go down swinging rather than eat shit like you did. And I'm sorry oh, I'm for you. I want, I want to go back to your, your part about the reporting. One of the things we've seen from our, we have 45 portfolio companies, is the ones that are good at getting us information and reporting to us and keeping us updated versus the ones that are really bad at that and you're going to be pulling teeth and constantly going into our experiences. The, the former seem to outperform the latter. I don't know if you've found that. Oh, that's be- 100% true. I mean, generally speaking, if you're not getting updates, the company's going out of business or is out of business already and just, you know, a zombie company. You don't want these to be overbearing updates. And so when a company yeah, gets sure. to, you know, 2 million in revenue and they say, hey, can we do quarterly updates? Um, or can we do six time a year updates? I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, like it's, it's going well. You know, the idea here is not to be overbearing with the founders. But if you can't sit for one hour a month, just one hour a month and get from your direct reports, their metrics and write 200 words, like two paragraphs. Like I tell people, write two paragraphs. Here's how we're doing financially. And here's how we're doing a product like two paragraphs or like, and then next month you could do, here's our hiring plan and here's our marketing plan. And you could alternate one month you do sales and you do product. The next month you do marketing and hiring, right? And just give us a short update. We always tell people short is better than none. Short is better than none. And if you can't get to it this month, just put, we had a sideways month. Revenue was at 50 last month. It's at 49 this month. And we still have uh 600K in the bank. So we're burning 25K a month. We've got 24 months of runway. Done. That's the whole update. At least people know you're still functioning, right? And you say, oh, and here are our open jobs. We have three open positions, jobs.acmecompany.com. Just that, it's just that short. And then what people don't realize is when, if your first time contacting your investors with an update is when you're out of money and you need a bridge, yeah. they're not going to provide it. Yep. But if you've been updating them all along and then you ask them for a bridge or you ask them to do a top-off round or you ask them to exactly. do an inside round, the chances go up exponentially. Like literally you'll have a 10X or 50X chance if you've kept them informed of getting that follow-on funding. And we see that all the time. Let me ask you about switching gears. Let me ask you about crowdfunding. I know that yeah. you know, you've been involved in crowdfunding for a long time. The SEC just made some changes to the uh, accreditation rules. Uh, what do you think the future of crowdfunding is and, and how do you feel about the changes to the uh, accredited investor rules? Well, the accredited investor rules have not meaningfully changed yet. The SEC has a plan to change them. They just announced that if you have a Series 7 or some of those like tests, you're going to be able to be accredited. Uh, I think most of those people probably were already. I think if you're a spouse or if you're working at an investment firm, you're accredited, which is good because yeah. those people working at firms couldn't put into their own firms. Yeah, our folks couldn't invest in our deals. Which makes no sense, right? Like if they're literally running the firm. I mean, in the SEC, somebody at the SEC was like, you know, technically speaking, I'm writing the laws on uh, accreditation, but I'm, I'm not accredited. So therefore, I, I'm okay to write the laws but I'm, or enforce them, but not actually participate in them. Makes no sense. What we really need to see is um, a course and a test where any individual, instead of taking a Series 7, could take a private company investing course and do a private company licensing, essentially, uh, just like you get you know, when I when I bought my pistol, I had to in California, take a test of like 20 questions, you had to get like 16, right? But you really, you could read a book in 15 minutes and pass the test. It was very basic safety. If we we're going to let people buy guns or go to Vegas and, buy, you know, bet on sports with no or low accreditation, uh, and we could, pro- we could probably do that for private companies. So I, I created angel.university. We have 300 people take the course every month will soon allow non-accredited people. And I've uh, opened up a dialogue with the SEC and said, hey, if people take this course and we have them answer 20, 30, 40 questions, could that be a path to becoming accredited? 
or sophisticated might be a better word. Um, uh-huh. Accredited might be like you're accredited based on your wealth and you're sophisticated based on your education. So I would like to see that added sophisticated. Now, there are other platforms like Seedinvest, Republic that do a great job with uh, doing equity crowdfunding where anybody can be involved. That requires a little more paperwork on the part of the founder so and a little more reporting, but that's okay. Uh, so I think it's going to be bright. And if we, if we learned anything through the crypto madness, the giant ICO scams of 2017, 2018, yeah. was it? Mm-hmm. You know, that entire ICO scam, flood of scams that never actually got products to market showed one thing, and that was there's a global appetite for risk. And yeah. people are wanting to invest in these companies to take risks. And if you look at SPACs and the whole SPAC movement, that's a global appetite for risk. I mean, literally, there's a company called Nikola who wants to compete with Tesla that has no products in market and they're worth 11 billion. You know, people are buying up their shares. They did a reverse merger back. I had the founder on my podcast, Trevor. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think it's a total fraud. A lot of people think it's legit. And obviously they're betting money on it. The truth is, you know, no company should be worth $11 billion before they launch their product. That's bizarre. Like magic. You're familiar with Magic Florida. Leap here in Florida. Yeah, no, I mean Magic <laughs> Leap is the Magic Leap and Theranos are perfect examples of that. Like when a company become or Quibi was another one that people were super critical of. They raised at over a billion dollars. I mean it was Katzenberg, so it makes sense. It's a hot market, but you just have to be careful about this. If people can raise large amounts of money before the product is launched, or you know, like ICOs or SPACs, that does tell you something about the market right now, which is people want to take risk. So. Should people be able to syndicate, invest in syndicates where a company has, let's say, a product in market, 10 employees, and they're making 500000 a year? That seems like a, a less risky bet than Nikola or Magic Leap. And I, I think it should just be a percentage of your income. So whatever you showed on your income over the last two years, you can invest 20% of that maximum in startups. If you go beyond that and you lie, you know, and you commit fraud as an individual investor, well, that's on you. Yeah. But generally, if if everybody signed a document that said like, hey, we're joining the syndicate.com, we're joining AngelList, we're joining Seed Investor and Republic, you agree that you will not invest more than 20% of your income average for the last two years. That would be, I think, enough for me to feel comfortable with people doing it. Because if you lost 20% of your income, you yeah. know, you can survive it. Um, and that's really the risk of ruin is uh, in gambling, something that you know I, I see people who will put their entire net worth, their entire bankroll on a poker game and in a poker game. And like, you know, they, they hit some incredible, they got the, you know, the best full house on the flop. And then somebody else has the other side of it and hits quads. Like one time I got out of the world series of poker, I flopped the top boat and it was Queens over twos. And the other person had the twos and they hit quads on the, on the turn and all the money got in. And, you know, it's really nothing you can do in that situation, but that's the risk of ruin. And yeah. people putting all their money into one startup, putting all their money into one ICO, God forbid, or all their money into Nikola, or God forbid, you know, Magic Leap or something like this is the mistake. So teach diversification. When we talk about the five D's of angel investing, diversification, due diligence, domain expertise, discipline, those are the things that we try to preach to our angel investors. I want to switch gears again and talk a little bit about, you meant, you've been around since 99. Snowflake went public today. It's some, I think it's trading at 80 times revenues. I mean, the, Bonkers. the tech run up here is just coming out of COVID is just unbelievable. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. SoftBank is, is now the whale that's been be driving a lot of this. We found out last week. And just, does this remind you of 99? Is this another bubble? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, you know, in 99, the companies that went public, a lot of them didn't have their products in market or they were pre-revenue. So no, it's very different 
and then that period of time. And we also, at that period of time, you had tens of millions of people on the internet and low tens of millions or low millions were on high speed. Now you've got a global footprint of billions of smartphones, some number of which have like high speed mobile. And then you have all the desktops on top of that. I mean, the penetration of high speed internet and commerce and payments being built into phones now, it's a totally different landscape that you're launching products into. So something like com.com can get to hundreds of public information, get to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, millions of subscribers very quickly, which in the 90s, that was not possible because there was no payment platform. There was no app store. And you know the app store phenomenon gives people access to millions, I'm sorry, billions of potential customers globally just by publishing you know, into one system. And so that's a, that's a big sea change. Is that why pets.com didn't work in 99, but chewy.com worked pretty well? 100%. In yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely is why. And, you know, the other thing is you have a generational shift. You know, last time you had these Gen Xers who would be the equivalent of millennials who were embracing it. Um, and then you had boomers who were not embracing it yet. And it was kind of confusing for them. Now you have boomers have fully embraced the internet, right? It took them a decade, yeah. but boomers are big. I mean, that's like Robin people Hood. over the age of 65 are big time into the internet, like and big time into mobile and iPads and everything. They're spending all their time on there playing casual games and, and shopping and everything. Then you have Gen X, which grew up on it. Like we were the first generation to actually experience the internet and remember the time. Like we were that bridge generation. I remember when I was, you know, 15 years old and, you know, on dial up and then 25 years old and on you know, the internet and then 26, 27 on high speed internet. So we, we saw that change. Millennials grew up only knowing online and then you have Gen Z. So this generational change means there's really very few people left on the planet who haven't actually bought something online. And then you have this pandemic and anybody who hadn't used a food delivery service like Postmates or Uber Eats or DoorDash or Instacart or Whole Foods delivery, Amazon Prime, 100% of people were forced to use those services. I think close to 100% were forced to use it or be exposed to it in some way. So those kind of sea changes don't occur that often. So that's why this is very different. That doesn't mean that you'll have bubbly-like moments like Nikola, which is not worth 11 billion, but if it was a private company and was worth three or 400 million, you could totally make that argument and that would be totally fine pre-launch if they had like a bunch of good technology. Sure, why not? And so you'll have bubbly-like events like Snowflake is obviously not worth what it's worth. There are many companies public who, you know, their valuations don't make sense. And that's okay. If you're going to make bonds worth zero and cash is going to be dangerous to hold because of inflation, people have to put their money somewhere. So they're just putting it. And if you can't, if you don't believe in cities and you think remote works the future, it's kind of hard to buy real estate. So like real estate, kind of hard to make a bet. Bonds, cash, hard. Angel investing in public equities. I mean, angel, the great thing about angel investing is valuations have been flat to down uh, in the seed stage for the last three or four years. So they kind of peaked four years ago, maybe 2016, 17, 18, you know, start to see this like crazy 12 to yeah. $15 million valuations or uncapped notes coming out of Y Combinator in some cases or often. And that kind of reversed itself because the angels were like, well, I have these other companies over here that are $6 million valuation. So I'll invest in two for your $12 million valuation. I'll get two swings at that. That makes more sense for me. And entry, entry price does matter. And, you know, so when founders are like, well, it doesn't matter if I become a unicorn. It's like, yeah, but if I took the approach of investing in $12 million startups, I could invest in 20. But if I invested in $6 million startups, I can get the same equity in 40. So I'd rather have 40 shots on gold than 20. So this is why, you know, entry price matters. 
So I, th- I think of you as like, you know, remember that guy, Steve Irwin? He was the crocodile yeah, hunter. Sure. So you're, yeah, you're, I know. you're really kind well. of the unicorn hunter. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably good. Yeah, unicorn wrangler. Mother, my, my friends call me the mother of all unicorns. Mother <laughs> of all unicorns. So there's a, there's a gift waiting to be made of me as Khaleesi, you know, with all the uh, unicorns. But, yeah. you know, you, no, it's, it's great to watch. And, and there's a lot of luck involved in this, but the luck will increase with focusing on process and being intentional and having a strategy. Agreed. So that's what I always encourage people to do, do is like start a process, which you do. And this actually is why like angel groups, generally founders don't like angel groups because they take too long to make a decision. Uh, but I do think angel groups, if they can move quickly, which is the key leak in their game is they take too long to make decisions and you get groupthink. So I always encourage founders, you know, to give those angel groups a deadline. Like, I want to get through this process in 10 days. Can you do that? Yes or no? If they can, great. If they can't, don't bother. That's why I tell them to manage angel group. But the great thing about angel groups is you get to learn and you get to see process. And any education and process is a good thing. Uh, just don't move. You can't move so slow. How long does it take you guys to process a deal and give it yes or no to a founder? Yeah, that's a little, we're a little different because we're a hybrid because we have our venture capital fund that can, ah, that can make, make a quick check yeah. and fund it. And then we can put it out to our angel network. We're really that's a crowd exactly what I do. Outside, so we're not really an angel group per se, but I w- our process is, you know, we can move as quickly as 30 days, but we probably tend to be more uh, longer than that, 60, 90 days. So that's really the key. We, we do something similar. We'll invest from our fund and then we'll syndicate a company and the syndication process will take four or five, six weeks from sending the deal memo to cash in the bank. Sometimes we do it in three or four, but I would say typically six, five, six weeks more likely. But we can write our check from our fund for 100 to 500K really quick, like yeah. same day. You same know? So awesome. We, yeah, awesome. We're getting a little short on time. I, wanted, I always like to ask this question. So if you look at the game-changing technology that's coming on board here, so we've got artificial intelligence, augmented virtual reality, IoT, Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, 5G, blockchain, quantum computing. Of the, emerge, the, the upcoming technologies and the opportunity as investors we have to take advantage of this, is there certain ones of those that you are most excited about and why? Yeah, you know, the, I think a lot of these technologies will be great additions to existing businesses. So adding machine learning and AI to any business helps. I'm not super excited about IoT. I think VR is kind of dead on arrival again. AR seems very promising to me. I could see AR winning the day, being the next big platform. So if Apple is, you know, app, we, we know Apple's working on AR. And if they had glasses that complemented your AirPods and your watch and your phone, now you've got like four pieces of computing on your body, the phone, the watch, the AirPods, the glasses. Mm-hmm. They could work in sync to do some magical things where you put the glasses on, and, you know, when you're looking at a storefront, it tells you the hours, it tells you the Yelp rating, or when you're walking down the street, you can see like turn right here uh, to go to the you know next Starbucks or whatever it is. And so mm-hmm. there are some really groovy features that you can just imagine, you know, whatever's on your smartphone, not, just imagine not taking your smartphone out of your pocket. Like that's what AR will be. So yeah. whatever you were going to look at, a stock price, a tweet, a text, you know, directions, changing music, listening to a podcast, all that stuff will probably happen in your glasses. And mm-hmm. that'll be super sweet. I mean, I think that's going to be sweet. But I don't know that there's going to be a new company built on top of that platform, rather than just, you know, Yelp when you just like, you know, Yelp or Calm work on your smartwatch or, you know, mm-hmm. with Alexa. I think it's like adding to features. 
but I do think it's going to be exciting and that will drive a lot more computing because right when you had a smartphone in your pocket, you know, you use the internet all day long when you were away from your desktop. Now you think about the time when your smartphone's in your pocket, you can't look at it because you're walking down the street or driving. Now you've got the AR glasses on all that time. The only time you're not going to be online, not clicking on stuff and not consuming stuff is when you either choose to take a digital break or you're asleep. And then eventually you'll have the Neuralink implant. And then even when you're (laughs) sleeping, you'll be on the internet dreaming and sharing your dreams with people or nightmares as the case may be. That's Um, good. That's good. So AR is the real deal, but I think it's five years off. Mm -hmm. Self-driving is the real deal. I think that's five to 10 years off. So, you know, it's a lot of these things people tend to overestimate in the short term, the impact and underestimate the impact in the long term. So the long term impact of smartphones, now that we're in the second decade of, you know, mass adoption of smartphones, we're really starting to see the impact of it to the point at which it's, we're seeing the detrimental impact of it, like too much usage of it. AR and self-driving, like we've, we've seen it for the last couple of years, like all the different betas. But I think towards the second half of this roaring 20s, it's going to get very interesting. I, actually, the one I'm really interested in, I have no investment in, regrettably, is VTOLs. I think vertical takeoff and landing drones for humans and cargo are going to become... I think they're going to leapfrog self-driving cars. So I'd really like to, if anybody is doing VTOL stuff, I'd really like to invest in these companies at some point. Okay. All right. Selfishly, I have a question. I yeah. don't it, but I'm, I'm relatively new to podcasting. I've been doing yeah. this uh, for about, I think this is about our 12th podcast. And we've had people like Alex Ohanian on, the founder of Reddit. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Miami Bennett. resident and Florida resident. So I'm not sure yeah, Jeff Vinnick, the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning and Hedge Fund guru. Uh, we've had Chris Sullivan, the founder of Outback Steakhouse. What suggestions do you have for people like me that are out podcasting? You've, you've really done a great yeah, job with your podcast. I, you know, the, the quality of the guest and the quality of the audio are the two most important things. And then third, your own personal interview style is critically important to develop. And so, you know, I, I really focused on getting great guests and having perfect audio. That's critical. So, you have the blue Yeti microphone. That's that's a good start. I would upgrade that to the Shure SMB5 or whatever that is. Okay. Uh, that's like the that's the two or three hundred dollar version. Will be better. Having a great audio engineer really work on the audio. The audio is absolutely critical. And we're recording this over Zoom. The step up from this is to order to record it locally on my side using Zencaster or just asking the person to record locally on their QuickTime and then sending you the file. So that's one of our secrets is we record locally, we stitch it together, it takes another two or three hours of engineering time. But for me, I think audio quality is, I'm a snob about that. And we force people to have Ethernet plugged in when they're doing Zoom calls. And we actually, my secret is we send people the entire podcasting kit. So when people agree to be on the podcast, we'll send them a microphone, we'll send them an Ethernet cable, we'll send them the headset, we'll send them everything. Uh, the dongle, even the dongle to go from USB-C to Ethernet. We do a tech check with them the week before. And that has resulted in our audio going up, you know, 10, 20% each time. And that is critical for me. Then in terms of interview style, you're a pretty good interview style here. Uh, and you're interviewing somebody who's a contemporary. So we both have a lot of experience. There's a good back and forth. My secret to interviewing is just to listen intently and not have a list of questions. But what I do is I listen to the answer that somebody's giving and then I try to formulate my next question based on channeling the audience and thinking about what their next question would be based upon what the previous answer was. So if I was answering, hey, I really think AR is going to change everything, the way I would answer that is I would say, uh, who do you think is going to win AR? Which company has the best likelihood to win it? 
Okay. Or I'd say, when do you think we'll be able to buy a $200 pair of AR glasses? When do you think there'll be mass consumer? When do you think we'll hit 100 million AR? Now I've got to think, right? So now we're playing ping pong together or tennis. I like to use this volleying. And so when you get into a rhythm with a subject and you're following volleying like that and you're listening, man, that can really work. And I, I studied all the great interviews, Oprah, Morley Safer, Howard Stern, Charlie Rose. I just studied all of their interview Howard techniques. Howard Stern is... <laughs> yeah, Howard's really great. Howard's got a great technique of like, oh yeah, so you were in ACDC and oh my, you were traveling the world and like, the parties and the 80s and all the cocaine and the strippers <laughs> and the and the groupies and the parties must have been insane. I, what was that like? I mean, my mind would have been blown. Like it's, it's, I don't understand. And he plays this like, he doesn't understand. You know, I was married all that time. And that person's like, oh my God, let me tell you a story. There was one time we were in Australia and we had a mountain of cocaine and we were just doing cocaine off the, you know, on the Great Barrier Reef and we were scuba diving and it was incredible. And like, they basically try to fill in for Howard, who's playing stupid. Then, you know, Charlie Rose had this great technique of like the level of gravitas. You were in the band ACDC when you peaked at 200 concerts a year. What was that like? <laughs> and he kind of lands the plane. Yeah. And it's so much gravitas <laughs> that the person who was like, I guess that was a big deal. Let me make a big deal out of my answer here, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's a really interesting technique. And then Oprah's got the very like motherly, like, you know, so, but you did do that, didn't you? You made that choice. You made that choice, didn't you, Tom? You, you decided to do that. I did. I'm sorry. You decided to do that. <laughs> and then the person was like, it's my fault. I did it. You know, so she kind of like, she doesn't corner people, but she makes them, she, she helps them confront whatever it is that was the challenge there, you know? And I, I did that. I did that Oprah technique with Trevor from Nicola, where I just said, so why did you create the distraction of doing a consumer car when you said this is all a B2B play and you're doing all this trucking routes? I don't understand why you created the Badger, or the consumer truck. Mm. Why did you choose that? You chose to do that as a distraction. Like, and he answered and he said, well, I did that because all these retail investors, we wanted to have a product for them. So, and then that's the quote that everybody is now talking about. Like, oh, he built the Badger in order to get Robinhood investors to fall in love with Nikola, that's kind of a little too honest on his part. Like that might be, that one quote could be his undoing in some SEC investigation where he says, I created a product to, you know, essentially the, the negative spin on it, the, the less charitable spin might be, he, he created the, the Badger, their consumer pickup truck, specifically to bait investors into buying the stock. That's what people were saying online. I don't know if I believe that, but he kind of did signal that, that it was a way to kind of attract retail investors, which... I'm not sure that that's what you're supposed to be doing when you're building yeah, a business. I don't think so. I think you're supposed to be building a business that is profitable. Yeah. So, I mean, anytime it's possible that those two things are not. Yeah, anytime I've seen founders are making business decisions for their investors, that never seems to work out very well. Hey, uh, we are out of time, Jason. All right, there we go. Awesome. You are awesome. Keep up the great work. And I uh, really appreciate me. you being on the show. To our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Florida Funders and angel investing, you can go to floridafunders.com, our website. You can also follow us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. We've done a, many of these podcasts, and we've had people like Alex Ohanian on, the founder of Reddit, Serena Williams' husband. We've had Peter Maluth, the number one wealth manager who's on CNBC all the time. 
and Chris Sullivan, the founder of Outback Steakhouse and folks like that. So those are all out on our YouTube channel. And with that, we'll sign off.